It's 206 BC. The fledgling Roman Republic has been locked in a state of total war with Mediterranean superpower Carthage for over five years in the Second Punic War. Carthage and her allies are still reeling from a disastrous defeat at Alipa. As General Hannibal and the Carthaginian Senate try to pick up the pieces, horror grips them, as they discover their most talented cavalry commander has defected and now fights under the banner of Rome. This is the story of Masinissa, the first king of Numidia, and his game-changing cavalry. Masinissa was born in 238 BC. His birthplace is not recorded, but it's likely somewhere in modern eastern Algeria, then known as Numidia. The territory that made up Numidia was roughly split between two kings. King Syphax, who held around 70% of the territory, referred to as Massasili, and King Gala, who held the remaining 30% or so, referred to as Massasli. Massinissa was one of the sons of King Gala and received quality education in Carthage, something quite unusual for the time. As was the case with the rest of the kingdom, the Punic Wars played a big part in Massinissa's early life. The Punic Wars were three separate wars between Rome and her allies and Carthage and her allies for supremacy of the Mediterranean Sea. Rome and Carthage were by far the two largest players in this time period. Most smaller states found themselves forced into an alliance with one or the other. Carthage was an established power while Rome was a new kid on the block. After the slight Roman victory in the First Punic War, Roman territory was close to the borders of modern Italy today with the addition of most of the island of Syracuse while Carthaginian territory was the coastline from Morocco to Libya with the majority of the islands, except for Syracuse. We've got a photo of the territory split on our website if you'd like to see. After the inconclusive ending to the First War, both sides knew that there was another conflict brewing between them. It was just a matter of time, and it was in this time of uneasy peace that Massinissa grew up in. With a new war around the corner, both sides worked to secure alliances, Rome, after much convincing, secured an alliance with King Syphax, and to counter this, the Carthaginian Senate managed to convince King Gala, that's Massinissa's father, to snatch up King Syphax's territory, as presumably his troops would have been elsewhere. King Gala elects his son, Massinissa, to have total command of the invasion force, and at 17 years of age, Massinissa agrees. Showing his military skills even from this young of an age, Massinissa's invasion easily defeats Syphax's forces, and follows the routing army all the way through modern Morocco, crossing the Strait of Gibraltar and into Spain, before finally being pushed back by Roman troops arriving just in time to stop King Syphax's men being completely annihilated. As a reward for his outstanding performance, he was given a high-standing Carthaginian wife by the Carthaginian Senate. For the next seven years, Massinissa continues to support Carthage, and plays a leading role in several battles around Spain. When the Carthaginian general Hasdrubal Barca leaves Spain to return home, Massinissa is given command of all Carthaginian cavalry within Spain, a huge show of trust. Massinissa puts these troops to good use, fighting a successful guerrilla war against famous Roman general Publius Scipio. To this day, Scipio is regarded as one of the most brilliant military strategists of all time, so for Massinissa to cause him so much havoc really shows just how good this guy was. The next major battle Massinissa takes part in is the Battle of Ilipa. As this battle was a turning point in the war, and a virtual death blow for Carthage, I want to spend a bit of time going through it. 
So prior to this battle, the last military engagement was 10 years earlier at Cannae, where an army of around 130,000 Romans was wiped off the map by Carthage. This humongous force was the largest body of troops ever assembled by Rome and likely any other empire at this point in history, and this was Hannibal's most famous victory. It can't be exaggerated how devastating this loss was for Rome, and it's a testament to the, well, Romanness of Rome that they did not throw in the towel after. Slowly but surely, Rome ramped up their drafts and somehow managed to recruit around 50,000 more men. With this crushing defeat on the mind of every Roman, there was an enormous amount of pressure for the next battle to be a victory. Rome had no more men to recruit, and their allies would likely switch sides after another loss. The Battle of Illipa took place sometime in spring 206 BC. The Roman forces led by General Publius Scipio, who would be known as Scipio the Great after this battle, and the Carthaginian forces led by Mago Barca. That's the brother of the famous Hannibal Barca. You know, the guy who crossed the Alps with the elephants. Mago got things started with a surprise attack on the Roman camps led by Massinissa. However, Scipio had got word of this attack and prepared accordingly. Massinissa and his cavalry were driven off. After a few days of staring at each other across the battlefield, Scipio ordered his troops to be fed and ready before dawn and launched a surprise attack on the Carthaginian camp. This pre-dawn attack forced a speedy deployment on Carthage's side. The troops were so rushed they didn't even get a chance to eat breakfast. In the hasty deployment, Carthaginian troops were arranged to counter the Roman troop formation that Mago had observed over the last few days. However, this was a ruse. Scipio had deliberately changed his troop formation on the day of the attack, knowing that Mago would try and counter this formation. The result was a disaster. Carthage was decisively defeated, and the army was routed and pursued by the Romans, with around 6,000 of the original 55,000 managing to get away. Not long after this horrible defeat, Massinissa makes a fateful decision to abandon Carthage and commences an alliance with Rome, much to the joy of Rome, obviously. There are some that think that even prior to this battle that Massinissa had already betrayed Carthage, even going as far as to suggest that the initial surprise attack led by Massinissa was only known because he himself was already in cahoots with Scipio. Historian Bartold Niebuhr speculates this hush-hush alliance went all the way back to the departure of Hasdrubal from Spain, where Massinissa would have had ample time to correspond with Scipio undisturbed. Niebuhr has this to say on the event, quote, at the time of Scipio's arrival in Africa, we find him, meaning Massinissa, again as the ally of the Carthaginians, and operating together with Hasmobol against the Romans. Scipio, however, renewed his former connections with him, and Massinissa promised to desert the Carthaginians, but that before taking that step openly, he would procure the Romans some material advantages. This fraudulent conduct allows that in a moral point of view, Massinissa was no better than a common barbarian. He was a base traitor who deserves the hatred of every honest man. Personally, I don't think this was the case. Prior to this battle, Carthage well and truly had the upper hand on Rome. Why would Massinissa switch to the losing side? Whether or not the Battle of Illipa was Massinissa's test of loyalty for his new Roman allies, or was just a lost battle straight and simple, afterwards he quickly confirmed an alliance with Scipio. Scipio, a veteran of the disaster at Cannae and very aware of the power the Numidian cavalry had on the battlefield, was only too happy to oblige. I might pause the story for a moment to go through something. Both Rome and Carthage were huge powers at this time. Why was there any effort expended on trying to gain the loyalty of a tiny local power along the coast of Africa? While Carthage and Rome both excelled in infantry combat, 
the Roman legion's discipline was what gave them their edge. Pound for pound, they could hold their own against any enemy in a pitch battle. But throw in a few variables, hilly terrain, forests and all that, this is where specialist troops like the cavalry were needed, and the Numidian cavalry were the best of the best. In Livy's history of Rome, he even went so far as to describe them as by far the best horsemen in Africa. So why is this? Well, the horses were smaller than the standard horses, and their stout bodies were equipped to endure long-distance travel, making quick, rapid movements. The riders themselves rode bareback, reportedly controlling their mounts with only a loop of rope around the animal's neck. They rode completely unarmoured, wearing only a simple tunic, a light shield, and perhaps a couple of javelins. Not being weighed down by armour and supplies made them very nimble, and it was that nimbleness that made them a wild card, and one that any half-decent general could make use of. Picture this, you're a legionnaire in the hot sun, shoulder to shoulder with your boys, your armour is heavy, and maybe, just maybe, you missed breakfast that day. A group of half-crazed, half-naked barbarians bolt out of nowhere, kicking up dust in your eyes and lobbing javelins at you before disappearing, only to return and do the same thing over and over again over the course of the battle, usually at the most inopportune times. The best use of the Numidian cavalry was to harass the enemy at their weakest points or times and try and weaken the morale of the legionnaires, or at very least tire them out. No other Roman troops, auxiliary or otherwise, could do this. And that's what made the Numidian cavalry so ferocious. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. Right, so... After swearing an alliance to Rome, there were some internal squabbles at home Massinissa had to attend to. Massinissa's father had just died of natural causes, so under Numidian law, the throne was given to his brother and Massinissa's uncle, Ethelsles. God, I'm sure I buggered that name up. This was apparently the custom and law in Numidia, and it seems Massinissa accepted this until a series of shonky backward passes meant the crown ended up with an advisor of Massinissa's uncle's second son, which, as you can imagine, was not custom. Massinissa ends up in the throne after a few skirmishes, though. His political opponents flee east and shelter with good old King Syphax in the east of Numidia. In Carthage, Hasdrubal, aware that he has now lost Massinissa to Rome, sends troops against Massinissa in hopes that this attack will force Rome to pull some of the troops away from Italy, where Carthage's greatest general, Hannibal, was currently running amok. The reinforcements do the trick, and Massinissa is defeated numerous times concurrently, Carthage being determined to crush him completely before Rome shows up with reinforcements. 
In one engagement, Massinus is badly wounded and retreats to a cave in the mountains, awaiting the help of Rome and Scipio. Scipio arrives in time and relieves Massinus's beleaguered troops, and together they take back the territory so recently won by Syphax and Carthage. They then continue the party and push west further and further, eventually taking all of Syphax's territory. With his back to the wall, King Syphax lined up his outnumbered forces against the full might of Scipio and Massinissa, and upon seeing his troops beginning to desert, made a courageous last stand, charging alone into the Roman army in hope of rallying his troops. Unfortunately, his badly injured horse bucked him off and he was captured by Rome, dying in prison not long after. The second largest city in modern Tunisia, Cephax, is supposedly named after him. To the victor belong the spoils, and Syphax's entire treasury is captured, but Massinissa is more interested in another treasure. The Carthaginian noblewoman who was promised for his victory in Spain was revoked after he defected to Carthage. No real surprises there. Though the marriage itself was never official, Massinissa apparently took quite an interest in the woman who was said to be very beautiful. Sophonisba, as she was called, was re-promised King Syphax, and when Massinissa and Rome took Syphax's capital, they found Sophonista somewhere in the palace. Massinissa, clearly wanting to make up for lost time, quickly marries her in secret. He tries his best to hide the woman from Scipio, aware that if he finds her, she will be taken as a prisoner of Rome. Try as he might though, Scipio does find out, and despite Massinus's pleading, Scipio declares she is to be taken to Rome and paraded through the streets in his upcoming military triumph. A humiliating affair for a woman of such high birth. Despairing, Massinus tells Sophonisba that he cannot save her from her fate, and encourages her to die by her own hand like a true Carthaginian princess, rather than face the humiliation of a Roman triumph. She agrees, and Massinissa smuggles a cup of poison to her, which she willingly drinks, apparently maintaining her regal composure as she faded away. This Shakespearean-style event gained a lot of popularity in the Renaissance, and numerous paintings were created for this. We've put a few of them on our website. To console Massinissa, I guess there were no hard feelings that he helped her kill himself, Scipio grants him the newly conquered lands, and Numidia, loosely modern Tunisia, is for the first time united under one ruler. Meanwhile, Carthage, now badly losing the war, sends a peace offer to Rome. The peace offer is one Rome will never accept, but at this point they're just buying time to muster all the troops they can. Throwing together everything they could, the Carthaginian army now prepares to meet the Roman juggernaut face on. The battle takes place near the town of Zama, just south of Carthage's capital. The now-renowned Scipio Africanus prepares his forces. While Carthage forces are more numerous, they are also of inferior quality, with large portions made up of mercenaries and civilian recruits. In this battle, Massinus is given command of Scipio's entire right wing, a huge display of trust being placed on him. The battle begins with the usual Carthaginian trump card, an elephant charge directed straight headfirst into the Roman lines. The Roman infantry formation is usually three men deep, but in this case, many of the lines only have the first row of men. As the elephants charge in, the first row of units simply step aside, creating a sort of highway of least resistance, which the elephants instinctively take, hurting themselves harmlessly off the field of battle. A brilliant move by Scipio, and a leading example of what made the new Roman manipold system so versatile. The armies charge forward, the infantry melee in the centre quickly developing into a stalemate where both sides have placed their best troops. However, on the right and left wings, Massinissa and another commander manage to rout the Carthaginian cavalry, again showing the advantage of Numidian cavalry even against other African cavalry. 
After following for a short distance, both commanders stop their troops from pursuing and turn around and charge the Carthaginian lines from behind. The stalemate turns into a slaughter, and Carthage's last gambit fails. The Second Punic War ends, and Carthage surrenders almost unconditionally to Rome. I won't go into all the soul-crushing terms Rome imposed on Carthage, and believe me, they were soul-crushing. But the most glaring of these was Carthage not being allowed to declare war, even in self-defence without the express permission of the Roman Senate. Massinissa knew this, and over the next few years, exploited his position as a close ally of Rome, slowly moving into territory that clearly belonged to Carthage. The once mighty state of Carthage was now reduced to begging Rome to arbitrate matters in their favour. You can probably see how this went. Almost every dispute Rome ruled in Massinissa's favour, and each time Numidia grew a little larger. Cheeky old Massinissa would continue this for the next 50 years or so and showed no signs of slowing down despite being in his 80s. Not only this, but still personally leading his troops into battle and physically training them at the unheard age of 90 years old. Talk about a firecracker. Despite these blatant land grabs, with Carthage being banned from any form of military spending, their economy skyrockets as they're free to double down on administration and trade. The intentionally crippling reparation payments Rome had imposed were paid off well ahead of time, easily. This is a testament to the ingenuity of Carthage, exploiting their only advantage they were legally allowed to pursue and excelling in it. A few years later, Cato the Elder, a famous Roman politician, visited Carthage. Expecting to see a smouldering, destitute ruin, he was incredulous to see a thriving city that still rivaled Rome itself. Upon his return to Rome, clearly fearful of the threat the neutered Carthaginian state posed to the empire, he would famously finish all of his speeches to the Senate with Carthago Delanda Est, or in English, furthermore, I believe Carthage must be destroyed. While Carthage had virtually no army, in Rome's eyes they sure had the economy ready to build one. Eventually, Massinissa kicked the old dog that was Carthage one too many times. In 149 BC, with the indemnity periods completed early, Carthage considered themselves free of the treaty they were bound to and declared war on Massinissa and Numidia. Rome, however, saw otherwise and declared war on Carthage due to a breach of the treaty. Interestingly, this is probably not what Massinissa wanted, as he knew the introduction of a permanent Roman province was bad news for his expansionist ambitions. This displeasure actually caused some problems for Rome, as Massinissa continually delayed sending the requested auxiliaries Rome required to besiege Carthage itself. Predictably, the third and final Punic War was over quickly. But Massinissa would not see it through. He finally died at the age of 92. His last act was to request his old friend Scipio to meet him personally, probably trying to get a slice of the Carthage pie Rome was currently carving up. But Scipio didn't make it in time, and the war soon ended after. The sacking of Carthage was as efficient as it was total. Almost all infrastructure was destroyed, and most of the city's population sold into slavery. An old myth about the sacking said that the Roman Senate demanded that all fields around Carthage were to be sown with salt, so nothing would ever grow there again. With its main rival completely and utterly destroyed, a Roman presence had been established in Africa and it wasn't going anywhere anytime soon. After Massinissa's death, Scipio would distribute his kingdom between his three sons. I mean legitimate sons, because if we're talking illegitimate sons, this man you had to procreate, and had as many as 54 kids. 
The newly unified state of Numidia would serve Rome faithfully until the end of the Republic, when his king, Arabio, would make the mistake of siding with Pompey Magnus in the famous civil war against Julius Caesar. After the conclusion of the war, eastern Numidia, followed soon by western Numidia, would be annexed into the newly created Africa Nova province in around 40 BC. So, what can we say about Massinissa, apart from him being apparently in better shape at 92 than I am now? Though some historians have been critical about the man's personal attributes, it's clear to me above all else that he was an opportunist. When he came to power, his family owned a minor territorial claim in Numidia, and by the time of his death, his family ruled over all of Numidia and a good portion of Carthaginian territory also. Through artful diplomacy, he was always able to make sure he was on the winning side, making use of his state's geographic position and thriving despite being neighboured by two of the biggest superpowers in the region. Though not specifically documented, he clearly had a force of personality. We saw he was able to continually gather troops in his civil war against Syphax, despite being on the losing side. This, and leading troops into battle personally, always seemed to give the commander an edge with the common soldier. Lexiconographer William Smith had this to say about Messinissa. He possessed indeed unconquerable energy and fortitude, with the promptness of decision and fertility of resource exhibited by so many semi-barbarian chiefs, but though with Carthaginian education seems to have given him a degree of polish beyond that of his countrymen, his character was indeed that of a true barbarian. Today, Massinissa is remembered in commemorative coins, music and statues throughout northern Africa. While his Numidian cavalry remained important enough to be depicted on Trajan's column, which still exists today in Istanbul, we're lucky enough to still have the tomb of Massinissa, which sits in modern Tunisia, hilariously close to the old borders of Carthage and Numidia. Even in death, he still seemed to have pushed the boundaries of his territory. Massinissa remains an important part of not just Algerian identity, but Berber identity, as a self-made man who managed to make himself invaluable as a small player in a much larger game. huge thank you to the show's Patreon supporters, Claudia, Tom, Malcolm, and Roll. A lot of people don't realize this, but this is a one-man show, so there's a big chunk of time that goes into research, writing, editing, and all that. I love sharing these stories, and it means a lot knowing you guys are enjoying them. Your contributions help me keep the lights on, sound libraries, web hosting, books, and all that. If you're not a patron already, we've got some really cool rewards, like having the option to read out some of the quotes we use in our episodes. If you want to go have a look, tap the link in our bio. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecle, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network.
and can be found wherever you get podcasts.